0: Remembering the great DJs of radio, it's Radio Greats with the Live Luke. Well,
1: this time on Radio Great, best way I can uh, describe him is if you've ever heard his son We Were There, he was there at (laughs) Radio Caroline, BRMB. Beacon, uh, extra, um, and KMFM and also a lovely little radio station called UDJ. He's been active in the business for over 40 years and I look forward to learning a bit more about him in this edition. But before I do, Bob Lawrence, how do I find you today?
2: Nervous. You look after me today, Luke, cuz um yeah, you're right. 40 odd years of being on the radio. I don't think I've ever been this nervous. Apart from that, I'm fine, thank you.
1: Well, that's brilliant to hear, Bob. And uh don't don't be too nervous. Just relax. We're we're all friends yeah. at the end of the day. <laughs> I, I first of all, uh, would like to start off with asking Bob, as as reflecting in the intro there, 40 years in the business and working on stations up and down the country. But going back to the beginning, how was it you developed the bug for radio? I think
2: I was about 10 and I wasn't very well. And my mum said, go to bed early and rest. And my elder brother very kindly said, do you want to listen to my radio? And I said, yeah, okay, great. And so he put the radio on, and I remember saying to him, he popped in and said, you know, how are you feeling? And I said, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. But this this radio station, he said, "Um, what is it? And he said, oh, it's on a boat. And I said, what do you mean it's on a boat? And he painted this great picture that this radio station was operating from this ship out at sea. And he kind of left it at that. And he went off and, and, and I remember listening to this radio station and my lasting memory is how do they get all these pop groups to go out to the ship, sing their song for three minutes and then go back. There must be this, this constant, you know, taxiing. And when I said to him the next day, how do they do that? And he said, no, no, no. They play records. What? Yeah, they play records. That's what they do on the radio. And that was the moment there was this light bulb that went off in my head. And suddenly these amazing pictures, uh, just wow, playing records on the radio. And then had this kind of fledgling interest. And like most, not all, but like most broadcasters of my generation, I'm painfully shy, really, really shy, and I discovered that if I sat in my bedroom with my record player, I could talk whilst playing records, you know, so I'd play a record and then I'd say... There you go, then. That's the sound there of Dusty Springfield for yourself. And I only want to be with... And while I'm doing this, I'm you know putting the next record on. So I was, I was playing records to myself, and then that developed into eventually my mum managed to get me a second-hand cassette recorder. And then I used to make these little tapes with the pause button, uh, recording the song off the radio. Pause just before the DJ back announced it, doing my own you know, and, and so on and so forth. And then when I was thirteen, as I say, painfully shy, when I was thirteen, my brother, not the brother who lent me the radio, the other one, said um Oh, there's an advert in the local newspaper for hospital radio. Well? Yeah, they want DJs for the hospital radio. And I no way I'm doing that. I can't. And anyway, he rang them up on my behalf without me knowing and uh, got me an interview. Uh, so I went along age 13 to the hospital radio station when I was 14, because uh, there was a training scheme in those days. And when I was 14, I was doing my own show. So there I was, the 14 year old Bob Lawrence had taken his first step. And
0: uh, that's how it all began, really. The Jay Giles Band starting us off from an LP called Gay Jay Giles
1: Band and Back, Fear and Square. Uh, we've got Champagne later on. Right now we've got Delaney and Bonnie. It all began with hospital radio. And as you mentioned, hmm. uh, listening to the radio at 10 and uh, your brother painting pictures about radio being on hmm. the ship. And then it's in August 1978 after you've... Uh, had experience with hospital radio that uh, you join radio caroline
2: (laughs) when i was in the hospital station um, one of the other guys who was just about two years older than me he shared my anorak passion for radio and then we set up a tiny little pirate station on plumstead common in southeast london and our signal got out to about the first house next to the common and that was it. Um And I was chatting with him. We became great friends. We together went off and did some, uh, joined one of the big land-based stations, pirate stations in London called London Music Radio, which was uh, a good little station. And then through that, I met a guy who had been Going out to the Radio Caroline ship to look after the generators. And he said, Well, look, I'll pass on a tape. And I said, Yeah, great. So he passed on a tape and it got turned down flatly. Uh, no. <laughs> Try again. So I tried again. Anyway, on the third tape, she went, uh, It was run by a, a, a woman in London, um, big secrecy. And she said, Well, mm, it's getting better, but. Mm, And then, about three weeks later, she just rang me and said, are you ready to go out to the ship? Yeah. And basically, one of the uh, other DJs had decided that uh, he'd had his belly full of doing it, and he'd left after three years, and they needed a DJ. And I think it was just because I'd been speaking to her three weeks prior that she remembered me, and she sent me out to the ship. And yes, on August the 14th, 1978... At three o'clock in the morning, I made my debut on Radio Caroline and um boy, was that an experience. I mean, I was just, I loved Radio Caroline as a listener because of the music it was playing. It was playing album music, different music to what was in the charts, different artists, people that I would never have heard of from listening to mainstream UK radio. And I loved it. Uh Just, it got under my skin and yeah. Um, I was, I was just, I got to the ship and what I didn't realize, I mean, it took me many, many years to appreciate this, which is, I just assumed that everybody wanted to work on Radio Caroline because I did, but no, that's not the case. And, um, as I found out. Some people went out and really couldn't hack living on a ship. We were on board for six weeks at a time, nominally. You know, Sometimes it would be five weeks, sometimes it would be seven weeks. But nominally it was you do six weeks on board and then you do six weeks on land and you get paid whilst you're on land for the time that you were on the ship. And uh, it was just the most amazing time, just under two years, of my life spent in this it was i mean i I mentioned i've written a novel a few years back and it was all based on my experiences of being on caroline and as i mentioned in the book it's it was just like being in a war film or a james bond movie because of the legality of the situation um the the legality uh, was that it radio caroline was legal because it was broadcasting outside of the territorial limit in international waters. What wasn't legal was for a British subject, a British passport holder, i.e. me, to work on that station. And so getting to and from the ship was the the dangerous bit, because you run the risk of, of being caught. And then when you were on board... In theory, it wasn't quite so dangerous, but the ship was getting old and um, it it did lead to one or two adventures. But yeah, I have to say now, Luke, that it was the best almost two years of my life and it did create problems. And I didn't, again, I didn't realise this until looking back. I came away from Radio Caroline because the ship sank and it was just, dragged away from me you know i didn't i didn't go through that process of saying well it's time to move on there no it was just the ship sunk oh right that's it um and i couldn't go back because there was no ship and i had real problems when i got into commercial radio it was a completely different beast and uh, when that u2 song came out i still haven't found what i'm looking for that resonated with me because i was just looking for that caroline way of doing things and it never existed anywhere but caroline interestingly until udj happened and um, that was that was pretty damn close but yeah keeping the chronology radio caroline 1978 until 1980 best two years of my life
0: Coming up to eight minutes now, past three o'clock in the morning from Europe's only album station, Radio Caroline. Good morning. I'm Richard Thompson. This is Madrigada. and that's free from an album called The Free Story. And come together in the morning. This album is in the countdown. It's at number four. The Renaissance, a song for all seasons.
1: And the best two years they sound, and anyone who's been on Radio Caroline has talked about the fun about fun of working there, um, and also some of the names who have been there. Uh, so, but as you mentioned, the ship sunk, and you couldn't go back. And then it's March 1980 that we find you on a little station called mm. Greenwich Sound. So, what kind of a station was Greenwich Sound?
2: Um, it was set up on a cable system. Now, in the olden days, pre um, satellite telly you used to pick your pictures up uh, on your telly through an aerial. And there were various locations around the UK. Um, from memory, there was Greenwich, Milton Keynes, uh, and a few others, where they set up cable television. This was a fledgling idea which had been you know, working in North America. So this part of southeast London got cabled up. And uh, people received their TV pictures through the cable. Well, they also got their FM radio through the cable, or at least they could pick it up through the cable. Now, the Greenwich Cablevision, as the company was called, provided a local TV channel as well, which broadcast evenings, couple of hours in the evenings and then through the weekend, And we just said, well, look, when you're not on, rather than carry BBC Radio London on your TV channel, why don't we set up a local radio station? And that was Greenwich Sound, uh, which was, it was far, far, far ahead of its time. And uh, it was well supported by local business. It was commercial and uh, it was a good little station. But, you know, little is the operative word. There was 7,000 subscribers, I think, to the cable. So that was pretty much the extent of the audience. You couldn't really get more than 7,000 until we realised by just driving along the high street in Plumstead, this is part of South East London. As I said, they also put out FM. Now, technical people will know what a leaky cable is. It's a cable which transmits the in this case audio through the cable but it leaks so if you happen to be close by you pick up this reception so we realized that if we had an fm transmitter which didn't go through the air uh, but went through the cable so it was fm but through the cable it would radiate uh, as well so we were legally on 90.2 megahertz because we had a license to go on the cable. Oh dear, that's a shame. Look, it also gets out and you don't need a cable to listen to us. So we had FM listening as well, which um which was a bit of a fluke, but yeah, it was it was fine. It was good fun and it was lovely to do radio in the town where I'm from. Um you know, I I I did go back and do a bit more. Um maybe we'll come to that later. But broadcasting in the town in which you grew up is such a buzz. It's just a great feeling because, you know, that area like the back of your hand. Um, Just. uh, Yeah. So, yeah, I did Greenwich Sound. I did the mid-morning show, nine till midday and commercial production because I've always been interested in production as well. You know, for me, it's not just being on the radio. For me, it's radio. It's all aspects of radio that, that really excite me. And I'm just as happy being locked away in a production studio um, for hours on end, messing around with sound and, and whatever, as I am being on the air. And so I did the commercial production and I did the min- mid-morning show. And at that point... Because I was voicing some of the commercials myself, a friend of mine was working at Devon Air Radio in Devon, surprisingly, and uh, I must give him a big mention, John Brox, his name is, and John said, well, look, why don't you come down and um, we'll, we'll give you the opportunity to learn more about voicing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was this... And this, this kind of thing can only happen in the olden days. This would never happen anymore. I used to go down to Exeter from London on a Friday afternoon. By the time I got to Exeter, the radio station was closed, but they used to leave the newsroom window open for me. So I would climb in the open newsroom window leave my weekend bag in the newsroom, then go across to the pub, because in those days, everybody went to the pub from radio stations. And during the weekend, a lovely man called Mike Jones, who's no longer with us, was the commercial producer at He was also in the pop group, The Settlers, who had that hit with Lightning Tree. Mike was a great bloke. He taught me so much about how to voice uh, my weekend trips to Exeter. And he said to me one day, he said, um... There's a job going at BRMB. And I said, uh, it's Birmingham, isn't it? And he said, uh, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, is it any good? And he said, um, <laughs> I remember his exact words. He said, it's like BBC local radio, but with adverts. And I said, oh, okay. And I said, well, what's the job? And he said, commercial production. And I said, uh, okay, yeah. So I applied for this commercial production job at BRMB and um, 1981, from memory. Um, There I was in Birmingham, uh, working for BRMB, making commercials.
1: Also, right in thinking, when you get to Birmingham, you are also taking—you uh, are also getting a little bit of a stint as a relief presenter as well.
2: Yeah, that was that was interesting because I got the job as a producer, and as I say, you know, for me being on the air, you know, it's all part of the same thing. So I said to them, "Look, you know, I, I can jock as well," and that that was treated with huge suspicion. Oh, Can you? Yeah. And one day, I got a f- an internal phone call. And the program controller said that um, Robin Valk, who sadly has passed away just a few months ago, was the rock jock at BRMB. And he said, look, Robin's off in a couple of weeks. Do you want to do his rock show? <laughs> yeah. is <laughs> the Pope a Catholic and all that stuff. Um, and so suddenly out of the blue, there I was doing this uh, rock show on BRMB and um it, uh from that, I, I then became, yeah, a swing jock and, you know, filling in when people were away and um, when they were on holiday and whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I did uh, the two things, producing and presenting.
1: Well, I have to ask, can you remember that first show you did on BRMB and what was it like?
2: I do remember it. First record was David Bowie's Modern Love. And I was terrified um the reason i was terrified was not the equipment not the fact that it was you know two and a half million tsa uh it was just because there were live football reports coming in because there was a football match at birmingham city that night now again that didn't phase me what phased me was that in those days pay attention luke here's a history lesson in those days whenever you played any music on the radio you had to write out what we called a PRS log. And that was the title of the song, the artist, the composers, the publishers, the record label, the record number, and the duration that that music played for. So I started the show, written modern love david bowie writer bowie and, and then the next one then the next one and then i had to do the football report and brmb were really hot on this and if there was any music playing in the stadium so when the reporter came in and you could hear in the background i had to log that i don't know what it is what is that? I don't know. We didn't have Shazam in those days. So I'm trying to concentrate on doing a show and I've got to write down on the PRS log in pencil, music uh, 36 seconds or whatever it was. And, and of course there were, I don't know how many reports, five six reports coming in during the evening whatever it was. And it was that part of it that <laughs> that freaked me out. Oh, In fact I can feel my stomach knotting just remembering the old PRS reports of the olden days.
1: I mean because you you started um, doing um, production work and also relief presentation and then and then you uh, take just a little bit of a break to go and do some voiceover work and then you're back at BRMB uh, but this time you do get your own permanent weekend show.
2: yes. Um, now you see, I, there's a fella called Nick Hennigan who holds the record for the most times he's left and returned to BRMB. And I think he's at number, he's at six, and I'm just behind him with five. So I worked for BRMB on, on you know, these five occasions and left, and it all kind of merges into one as to which particular stint. But yes, I, I went back to BRMB. Um, I got no idea why, but I did. I think I went back again as the commercial production manager because my first job was just produ- uh, commercial producer. And then I went back as the commercial production manager and I was doing a weekend show as well. But as I say, it kind of it all merges into one after a while. Um, But yes, if it's if I'm remembering correctly, it was a great show that I did. was a Saturday night, and uh, something like six till nine or seven till ten, something like that. And I came up with this idea of having Year Zero, and I said, "Look, 1976, when most people accept that punk." music started we'll take that as year 0 and we won't play anything before 1976 apart from bands like the velvet underground who you know influenced so much of of what happened so it was It was 1976 onwards, and there was a lot of dance music going on, certainly in the Midlands. Midlands had a really thriving dance music scene. I'm not talking about soul and disco. This is um, electronic dance. There was a lot going on. And I didn't really know – well, I knew it, but I didn't understand the scene because I've never been a a club person. But the first hour of the show was a dance hour – and uh, just used to play an hour of dance mixes, and there was some fabulous music around at the time. funny enough, I was just thinking, just yesterday, I was having a chat with somebody, and um, Stephen Tintin Duffy, who started life in the early Duran Duran, when I first got to Birmingham, everybody was raving about this song called Kiss Me, and it was a 12-inch. I'm going to put my neck out and say, I think it was Francis and did it but it was somebody who did this remix it was huge and that's what got me interested in this um electronic dance music uh so we played an hour of this electro dance stuff um and then opened it all out and there were some brilliant bands around at the time so it was great i used to make commercials during the week and in the e- saturday evening i'd go in and, and play all this new rock slash dance music um loved it absolutely loved it and then they decided that they were going to take the show away from me and um that was that um bob's your uncle as they say
1: well apart from with radio caroline but starting in your hometown of greenwich and then in greater london and then move into what is officially the second city of the uk hmm. what was it like broadcasting in a city like birmingham
2: exciting exciting um it's very easy to forget and it's obviously very easy for those who don't know, BRMB was huge. You know, if if you went around Birmingham, uh, if you went around the West Midlands, everybody listened to BRMB. And if they didn't listen to it, they had listened to it at some point. So I was working for this Absolutely phenomenal beast called BRMB, uh, which was wonderful. You know that that would um, cue jump if you uh, if you wanted to. You know just the fact and the Breakfast Guy, Les Ross. Now I cannot tell you the first time I heard Les Ross. I, I got to Birmingham at my first night. Woke up the next morning. What is this? This guy is still. The, unquestionably the most talented natural broadcaster that I've ever worked with. And when I say natural broadcaster, you know, people people maybe don't understand. I I, I did overnights on BRMB for a long time, so I would precede Les. Les would follow me. Now, Les came from Studio One, which actually was always my favourite studio. I came from Studio Two. Uh, Les started at six o'clock, and... Very often, the six o'clock news would be halfway through and Les would still be in my studio, Studio 2. And then he'd casually walk back to his studio. And I've experienced this on many occasions. He'd walk in as the newsreader was finishing the weather. And just as the, you know, it's three minutes past six or whatever, Les would throw the microphone open. He hasn't even sat down in his chair. He starts talking whilst putting his cans on, getting himself sorted. He's doing his first link, selecting his first song, queuing it up while he's talking. And yet what you hear on the air is just fabulous. And and it was a I hated that. I've spoken to many people who did overnights on BRMB, and we all agree the last hour, five till six, was the worst one. And more importantly, you knew that at six o'clock, Les was – however good you were, Les was going to blow you out of the water. Um, So it was was interesting to hear Les because in London, we didn't have any radio like that. We didn't have anyone who – clearly didn't work to a format just opened the microphone and spoke and engaged with the audience and it was wonderful to hear les be les and anyone who's heard les will know exactly what i'm talking about um just the fact that he would put people on the air just randomly somebody would come on the air and you know where'd you live love and she'd say oh boss common Oh, my auntie, Sybil used to live in Borsalco, and and it's true, you know, and he talked talk about, do you remember the uh, news agents on the corner? That was my uncle, or whatever, you know, all this kind of stuff, just real local broadcasting, but not local broadcasting like I'd heard it on BBC Radio London, though this was just a, a local lad engaging with his audience, taught me so much, I learnt so much from Les, yeah, Huge station, huge transmission area, big and powerful BRMB. Clutter free, 103 Beacon Radio and Shropshire's top 30. At 30, it's the cutting through.
0: At 29, Jelly Bean. At 28, the Hooters. At 27, Shakin' Stevens. The Tams are at 26. The Smiths at 25. Blue Mercedes at 24. Paul
2: McCartney at 23. Cleveland with Mac at 22, George Michael 21,
0: Eric B and Rakim at 20, The House Martins at 19, Boy George at 18, Freddie Mercury at 17, at 16 it's Banana Rama, The B G S at 15, and Barry White is at 14. We're going to have dinner with Gershwin after the news. Direct from John Warner's satellite Meteostat 2, the county's most accurate weather. Mainly cloudy today, a few spots of rain dotted here and there. The high, about six degrees. In fact, we've reached that. Whitchurch has six, Ellesmere has six. And here at Beacon 103, we have six degrees Celsius. We're also at number 13 on Shropshire's Top 30. It was 17 last time.
1: It's Donna Summer having dinner with Gertrude. Leaving uh, BRMB in 1987, but you don't leave the Midlands uh, directly because um, you head up north to another city, that being Wolverhampton, and uh, you join Beacon Radio. It was a
2: town when I joined.
1: Oh. Yeah. You see, interestingly,
2: I'm saying, I've tried to articulate this. If you're into your football, me leaving BRMB and going to Beacon would be like somebody leaving Tottenham Hotspur to go and join Queen's Park Rangers. And you'd scratch your head saying, but BRMB is the big station and Beacon and all of that's true. But the situation was, um, I was the commercial producer, uh, at BRMB and I was doing swing shifts. And there was a guy called Graham who worked in commercial traffic and he was doing swing shifts. We were both doing swing shifts. But after a while, I realized that he was getting the, the plum gigs and I was, <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, he went off and became Graham Torrington. Uh, me. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to do more and um BRMB basically didn't fancy me uh, as a jock and so I had to go and so I went and joined Queens Park Rangers and uh, you know I've never ever since I started I never saw this as a career in as much as there was no career path you know people who who do anything as a career you start small you go to a medium you go to a large you go to a Uh, mega big and it was never like that for me it was just about radio you know it it was just do i like the station and i loved beacon i thought beacon was a great station i just loved what beacon were doing beacon was started in 1976 by a canadian and a scot who had spent a long time in canada and they were real mavericks they were real rebels they'd long gone by the time i got to beacon But there was still an element of mavericity, is there such a word, Um, about the place. Uh, The program controller didn't have an office through choice. The program controller had a desk in the jock's office through choice. Um, Now that, (laughs) I negotiated with Beacon that I was going to go across and basically do what I was doing at BRMB, which is... uh, make commercials and do some programs. Well, I was due to start on the Monday morning on the Friday. I was out walking the dog, got back Friday afternoon and, um, there was a, you're too young to remember this Luke, but in the olden days we had a thing called a, an answer phone. And, uh, my little answer phone thing was flashing. There was a message on it. So I pressed the play button and it said something like, hello, bub, this is Alan. Um, As of Monday, I'm the new managing director at Beacon Radio, and uh, your first day is Monday. So just thought I'd introduce myself, and I'll see you Monday morning. Oh, okay. So I'd done the negotiation with the previous uh, managing director and program director, but actually they weren't going to be there on my first day. Okay, fine. So I pitch up on the Monday, introduce myself. Fine, okay, good. About ten past nine, I wander into uh, the program director. fella called pete wagstaff uh and i said uh hello this is who i am oh yeah right fine i said um i'm sure it'll be in the paperwork somewhere but i'm coming to do programs as well no you're not "Uh, yeah i am no you're not mate i said um well okay but that's uh, what what pardon and he said uh i've never heard you i said well i've been on BRMB for however many years well i've never heard you have you got a cassette I said, yeah, I've got a cassette at home. I'll, br- I'll bring it in. So uh, the next morning, the Tuesday morning, I walked into his office. Here's the cassette, Pete. Ah, oh, OK. Right. So I walked out. Ten minutes later, my office door opens. He walks in, throws the cassette at me, and he says the immortal words, you're not going to be on this station. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. That's one of the reasons I've come here. He said, look, I'm the program director and you ain't going to be on my station. Right. Okay. So I am one full day and about 20 minutes or so into the second day at this radio station. I've just left BRMB, the major market station down the road to come here and I ain't going to get on the air. So I said to him, well, look, I mean, credit to him. He, you know, I, I got on really well with him. I, I, I Really well. Uh, credit to him. He said, um, well, look, Do you know Chris Ashley? And I said, well, I don't know him, but I know who he is. Yeah. He said, well, Chris Ashley's program director at Red Dragon Radio in Cardiff. I said, oh, yeah. He said, he's looking for jocks. Give him a call. So I rang Chris Ashley on my second day at Beacon Radio. And he said, "Ah, I was looking for jocks, but I'm not anymore. Uh, Okay, So I thought, well, there's nothing I can do. And lunchtime appears on this second day. And I get an internal phone call from the managing director. Can you come and see me? I said, yeah. So I went in to see him. And opened his door and he said, um, well, this is good, isn't it? I said, what's that? He said, "Uh, you've been here one and a half days and already you're looking for another job. I said, well, I'm not with you. He said, "Uh, Red Dragon Radio, you're looking for a job at Red Dragon? I said, no, no, no. And I went through the whole story. Um The funniest part of this is the ending to this. Because roll on a few months, and Pete Wagstaff refused to put me on it. I stayed at Beacon. He came to me. uh Beacon had launched a second area into Shropshire, Medium Wave and FM. And he came to me and he said, I can't find anyone to do weekend breakfast on, on the new station. And I said, oh, really? that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll have to do it. And I looked at him and I said, sorry, so you're putting me on the air because you can't get anyone else? And he said, yeah. (laughs) So I ended up doing weekend breakfast on Shropshire. And then uh, I left Beacon. I don't know when, but I did. Um, Went back to full-time voicing. And um, I got a phone call to say, uh, Bill Young's leaving as program manager of WABC, the AM service. I need a program manager. And I went, yeah. And he said, well, do you want to do it? Uh, eh? Uh, Yeah. So he offered me program manager of WABC, which at the time was a radio station playing Swing and Big Band and the crooners, Matt Monroe, Frank Sinatra. And it was a lovely job. I really enjoyed it. It was hard work. It was before the advent of computerized playlists. So one of my jobs was to program... (laughs) With a pen and paper, 24 hours of music for the radio station. Here at Beacon 103, we're looking at Shropshire's top 30. We do so every Sunday between midday and 2. And let's have a look at what numbers we've gotten through so far.
0: Cutting Crew, I've Been in Love Before, is at 30. Jelly Bean, Who Found Who, is at 29. And the Hooters satellite is at 28. At 27, it's Shakin' Stevens. what do you want to make those eyes at me for? There ain't nothing like Shaggin', the Tams is at 26. At 25, the Smiths, I started something I couldn't finish. At 24, Blue Mercedes, I want to be your property. Paul McCartney, once upon a long ago, is at 23. Cleveland Mac's Little Lies is at 22. George Michael's Faith is at 21. And Eric B and Rakeem, Paid in Full, is at number 20. At 19, it's the House Martinsonville. Boy George, to be reborn, is at number 18. Freddie Mercury and Montserrat Bach Barcelona is at 17. And Banana Rama, Mr. Sleaze and Love in the First Degree, is at 16. <laughs> Geez, a former number one, you win again, is at 15. Barry White, show you right, at 14. 13, Dinner with Gershwin, Donna Summer. Maxi
2: Priest, some guys have all the luck, is at 12. And Mirage, Jack Mix 4,
1: is at number
0: 11.
1: to ask about WABC. Uh, hmm. It being the AM station, because I read somewhere wasn't that originally supposed to be the name for Beacon when that launched? But then there was some issue regarding they wouldn't allow, the ILR wouldn't allow a four letter.
2: Yeah, well, well, they let BRMB call themselves BRMB. Um, I believe that's because BRMB was the Telex um, uh, abbreviation for. Birmingham, something. I don't know. But yes, I mean, from what I can gather, and as I say, the the Canadians had gone by the time I got there. But from what I can gather, they wanted to call it WABC, and they said to the the IBA, as it was then, the uh, forerunner of Ofcom, they said to the IBA, uh, it stands for Wolverhampton and Black Country, WABC. Um, but if the legend is true, the IBA said no, you can't. But um, by the time the splits between AM and FM happened, uh, whoever it was—I think it was the radio authority at the time—were far more lenient, and uh, so it was. It was nice and easy radio. WABC, and of course, we went off and got uh, re-sings of all the uh, WABC New York seventy-seven WABC jingles. Great jingles, just wonderful, and that. You know, for an anorak to be able to sit there on a live radio show and play WABC jingles legitimately, what a thrill that was. It was
0: Louis Armstrong, firstly, and Mac the Knife, and then Dusty Springfield, and Losing You. And if you get, uh, you can buy videos now of Ready, Steady, Go, the old pop show from the 60s, and if you get one of them, there's a clip of her singing Matt uh, on video, and somebody rather cheekily touches her bum. (laughs)
1: also have to ask uh, you were doing the mid-morning show Hmm. what was that like
2: yeah it's interesting when I look back when I look back on my career it's interesting that I always seem to pitch up on mid-mornings um what was it like it was wonderful it was really really wonderful um because the audience was a, a an older audience, as I say, at the time we were playing Sinatra and the older audience just embraced this radio station because suddenly they had a station which was directly aimed at them. There was none of this pesky pop music. It was just this this music. And I can't tell you, it was so similar to the reaction that I used to get on Caroline. Because Caroline, again, as I said, it was, it was playing album music, which nobody else was playing. And so anybody who listened to it knew the value of it, and they appreciated it, and they let us know. And it was exactly the same with WABC. And yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. If I'm going to be completely honest, which I feel I have to be, there were times... Once you've done a few shows where you are limited in your musical style, your musical genre, but overall, I absolutely loved it. It was great. And um, some, some great DJs as well who uh, generally embrace the whole concept. It's it, It's hard to explain, but prior to splitting between AM and FM, Commercial radio DJs in the 80s and the 90s were a particular breed in the main. There was the, there was the first generation who had come through, and then there was the second generation. And that second generation really learnt everything from the commercial radio stations. So everything they knew, everything they believed, was just what they've done. And it's that thing about, you know, we do it this way because this is how we do it. Um, with WABC, we kind of brought some people in who hadn't done that. We brought a guy up, um, uh, yet another one who's no longer with us, a guy called Tony O'Reilly, who was this um, Irish guy. Uh, he worked on the Voice of Peace down in the Middle East, and as with most Irish people, he just had that gift of the gab, and he had that really, you know, it, he could just read from the telephone book and you'd be going yeah yeah tell me more tell me more um really engaging and he was slightly older than uh your average dj so he had a more of an understanding of the music as well uh it was great it was a great little station it really was and then it and then it kind of went wrong because they turned it into a gold station um as opposed to what it was and that's when it kind of got diluted a bit and they also changed the area they went from Wolverhampton and the black country if you don't know the geography of the West Midlands um, you've got the big major conurbation of Birmingham you keep going north you've got Wolverhampton and, and what surrounds it is known as the black country now people in the black country are very pr- to this day they are very proud people but they are proud of being black Country people. They don't see Birmingham as being anything at all to do with them, and the radio station made the, I think, the uh, fatal move of going on air and saying Birmingham and the Black Country, um, and it that combined with you know playing Lulu records and and the Dave Clark Five, it, it lost its um, identity. And that that was a big shame, I think. Oh, just
0: one of those songs, one of those. Uh songs. You know the ones I mean. Carly Simon, the future Mrs. Bob Lawrence, and You Have to Hurt. It's from an LP called Coming Around Again. Just sitting here, I've been off for a week as you know, or the best part of a week anyway, and uh, I was just sitting here reacclimatizing myself, it's a big word, myself, uh, to the studio, and looking around, and where we uh, keep all the postcards, you've heard us these picture postcards that we've been sent from whoever's gone away. Uh, thanks for the cards, by the way. There's a whole wall of them. Uh, and I was just looking at one, and I thought, well, that's a strange one. So I got up out of my seat, walked over, and it's not actually a postcard at all. It's actually a, actually a photograph of a lady in a bikini. Now, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I haven't got a clue. Uh, there's nothing written on it at all. Just a lady in a bikini, and it's a, it's a proper photograph. So uh, I think we'll have to do some investigat- investigat- investigative... I can never say this. Investigative journalism easier to do than say
1: so you leave um way back and wolverhampton in the in february of 1991 and then you go uh, head back down to birmingham at uh, this time with a little station <laughs> called buzz <laughs> fm now am i right yeah. in thinking this was the forerunner for what would later become capital extra
2: you see this is really interesting <clears throat> so i got to the stage where i had to leave wabc Because, as I said, I I just felt I couldn't continue there. So I left, and a pal of mine was working at Buzz and said, "Um, uh, There's um, a gig going here. I said, What, a Buzz? And he said, Yeah. And it was a radio station that was playing black music or music of black origin. And uh, I thought, Well, you know, this will be interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I got the job, and um, uh, I think. I think I went in on the Friday for the interview and I started on the Monday or something. And yeah, yet again, the mid-morning show. And I was playing uh, black music, which, you know, I, I would never, to this day, I would never say I was an expert on black music, but I learned so much about the music. And it, Buzz was a, a very strange station, went through a hell of a lot of owners. It, it was almost, who's our managing director this week? Who's our owner this month? You know? Um and there was, whatever, what year did you say? 91 was it I joined, Buzz? 91, I think. yeah. Yeah, 91. And I think it was that summer, we sounded really good. It all just came together and we were, we were sounding really good. But the problem was nobody could hear us because we had about 40 watts. And there's a lot of concrete in Birmingham. Um, it was never a great uh, opportunity for people to listen. But... Good fun. But I rem- my lasting memory of Buzz, to be honest, is because I was still uh, a voiceover, so I would earn my money from being a voiceover. Yes, I was earning money from the radio station, but, you know, that was just the icing on the cake, really. And we got to the stage where P- I mentioned that we didn't know who was owning us, let alone managing us. And we hadn't been paid by the radio station for some time. And I remember... um speaking to three or four of the guys and they were saying look you know i just i've got bills to pay and whatever and i i ended up paying the djs um not all of them um three or four of them and i i kind of were, look you know i'm earning money and you're not and it's just you know so um I remember, <laughs> it was like being it was like being a money lender he used to call them into the production studio and sort of Hand out these twenty pound notes to the various DJs. Of course, all of that's been forgotten in the mists of time. None of them have ever paid me. No, one of them did pay me back. I do remember that. Um, uh, but yeah, that it was such a shame. Yeah, Buzz got taken over so many times, and it is what is currently Capital Extra um, was Buzz FM. Yeah.
1: leaving buzz in april 92 you were uh, head back to brmb again again <laughs> um
2: i got a phone call i was doing mid-mornings at buzz i got a phone call um and the bloke on the end of the phone said uh it's alan Carruthers. can you speak and i said yes alan Carruthers was the program manager at brmb and he said, um, we want you to come back and we want you to do Friday late show, Saturday late show, Sunday rock show. Well, musically, that was, oh, sorry. And the Friday and Saturday is an adult format. We want you to play Jackson Brown and Steely Dan and America. And and it was, wow, this is, ju- this is what I want to do. And it's BRMB, and um, so, you know, it wasn't a hard sell. It was just, yep, I'm there. Uh, so I went across, and I had a lovely time, voiceover during the week, earning money, uh, weekends, having fun, still earning money at BRMB, Friday night, Saturday night, late show, all this music that I loved, Sunday night, cranking up this rock. Um, it was fantastic. Until Capital Radio took over. And Capital Radio bought uh, basically all the radio stations in the Midlands, uh, including BRMB, and um, I was one of the very first casualties. You're not staying, you're on your bike. So I was gone, and they replaced my shows with... (laughs) Love songs presented by a really, really good friend of mine, and um, um, to this day, people outside of radio say, "Well, you know, that must have been awful." Your friend taking no—that's you know, the nature of the game. You know, what's he going to do? Say, "No, I'm not doing that gig because Bob's my friend." Of course not. But um, yeah, so it was the complete antithesis of what I was doing, and and it became love songs. Um, So I didn't know what to do. And I got a phone call from somebody saying, John Evington, yet another one who's no longer with us. John Evington at Signal Radio is looking for somebody to do the weekend late show, exactly what you were doing at BRMB, Uh, except it wasn't musically, but it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I did that. And I don't know how long I did that for. Uh, It wasn't a huge amount of time, but uh, I worked at Signal um, in Stoke-on-Trent I didn't enjoy it because I always felt the, the 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 building was haunted and uh, being there late at night on your own, uh, I was never at, at my best. Um, but yeah, I, I did signal.
0: BRMB FM, Tears for Fears, when there were uh, two of them, <laughs> seems a long time ago. Tears for Fears and Mad World. Uh, the final uh, Bob Lawrence programme for BRMB FM, which means it's uh, the final track from our final featured classic album. Uh, tonight's classic album is from Bruce Springsteen, The Tunnel of Love Album.
1: Well, the times do, did change because in 1999, you accept a 12-month contract uh, with a station called Fossway in uh, mm. Leicestershire.
2: I was living uh, at the time in a little village. And if you went about a mile and a half down the road, you got to, uh, is it four or five It was a point where four or five different counties met, and one of them was Leicestershire. And um, Fosway was coming up um, uh, in Leicestershire in a place called Hinkley. And um, I did Saturday breakfast and Sunday afternoon Aldi's show. That was an interesting time because that was part of the Lynx FM group. And Lynx at the time had lots of stations all over the place and they all followed the same uh, broad format um you know they all fitted the lynx way of doing things and so although we were an independent station we had to constantly keep checking the book to find out whether it's all right to do that and it's all right to do this and I, I didn't really fit in, to be brutally honest. I had a lovely time and I worked with some fabulous Paul Roby, who is now um at uh Boom Radio. Um uh, he was my boss, he was my program controller. I got on really well with Paul, um, enjoyed working for him. Um but I didn't really fit in with the Lynx ethos. You know, the Lynx ethos was very safe. It was, you know, there there was problems because I'd used the word uh, spit on the air. And I I got into not hot water, but I was advised not to use the word spit on the air because it could embarrass people. And I found that very difficult. So yeah, my contract ran the full length of 12 months and then that was it. Um, I was off. Where did I go then, Luke?
1: I believe you went to, to radio Caroline oh yes, I did ma- for thirteen fabulous years,
2: yes, I went back to Caroline by this time. Caroline had done its Seaborne thing and was now um, and no, not on internet a uh, yes, well, it was internet that 's right uh, an internet station, and I got a phone call one day um Nigel Harris, who I'd worked with on the ship, and he said, um, what are you doing? And I said, well, not a lot, really. And he said, well, do you fancy doing a weekend show with Caroline? And I said, yeah. Yeah, great. So um I did a pre-record down during the week and they broadcast it at the weekend and then it just developed from that and um I stayed with Caroline for quite some years the uh, the current Caroline situation. I did some thinking about, you know, I've had a great career. It's not over yet, but I've had a great career and when you look back, there are certain people that you can say he helped me, she helped me, he helped me immeasurably. And I decided I was going to get in touch with as many people as I could, who I could quantify as as having helped me and thank them and say, thank you very much, because without you, I wouldn't have had this career. And unquestionably, Radio Caroline gave me my big break. That was, you know, phenomenal. And I thought, well, how can I say thank you to a radio station? And I thought, what this radio station needs is a transmitter to go through the air. And so I spoke to the boss of Caroline and I said, look, we can't get a licence because there are no licences available. I'd like to start a campaign to get Caroline a licence and it will be my way of saying thank you for the leg up back in 1978. And in all honesty, I think he kind of went, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. yeah, Yes, Bob, you know, you go away and do it. And thinking that there's not a cat in hell's chance. And um, so I started this campaign. I got in touch with every member of parliament to see if they would support it. The first one to reply came in and she said, I would love to support this because I got into politics because of Radio Caroline. When the Marine Offences Act in 1967 tried to silence Caroline, I was incensed. And uh, I demonstrated and I started petitions and it, it was the touch paper from my political career uh so she did and then uh, tracy crouch um got in touch and said yeah i uh, fancy this and she was just phenomenal and she organized an early day motion and she harried and uh, hustled and uh, the campaign ran for a long time a long time And uh, eventually, to cut a long story short, Radio Caroline got a transmitter and they're now transmitting um, to the southeast of England. And and I'm so grateful that they have. Um, I just think it's my little bit to say thank you, because without Caroline, probably, probably nothing would have happened in my career. Because in those days... You know, where could you go to get a, a leg up? It there were very, very few radio stations around, and those that were, you know, it was it was really difficult to get into. So um very, very, very chuffed that Caroline's on the air now.
0: Start your day the bubble laurels way. The silky sound of a man about town. Bob Lawrence, the cool sound. Bob Lawrence on your DJ Radio. Start your day, the Bob Lawrence way. Day. Start your day, the Bob Lawrence
1: way. Well, you've done a, um, a few other bits and bobs for other different stations. Um, including Fossway Radio and also Millennium and um, also KMFM in Kent. <clears throat> um, but in it's in April 2019 that Tony Prince is setting up a new radio station uh, called UDJ. And uh, he brings you along, uh, alongside other big names like Mike Reed um, and other heritage names. So how was it UDJ started?
2: Tony Prince. Basically, decided that the time was right for internet radio, and this was a chance to set a station up and be in at the beginning of the whole internet radio boom. And um, the idea was that 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 we would be on, we would be up and running, and as as internet radio took off, we would be there uh, already set up. And, you know, I, I absolutely take my hat off to Tony. I, I can't stress enough. I, in radio, you know, I know, we all know everybody thinks they can do a better job than the people doing it. And very few actually literally put their money where their mouth is. And Tony did to the value of about a quarter of a million pounds out of his own Wallet Tony put into United DJs, and it was it was something that interested me right from the start, because I just loved the idea that these seasoned broadcasters were actually saying, we're going to give this a go. So yes, I jumped at the opportunity to get involved, and it was without a doubt, Radio Caroline comes top in terms of the listener feeling genuine love for that radio station and a very close second comes UDJ. that the listeners that we had absolutely got it they loved the whole concept of what we were doing they they were with us a hundred percent the problem was there were just not enough of them in programming as i said on my last morning show. In programming terms, it was a success. What we did in programming was successful. It just wasn't successful in commercial terms. And the reason was that internet radio still hasn't actually happened yet in in large numbers. I think it will, but I think it's going to take a long time um, until you can get... I know you can get the internet in your car, but it's fiddly. Until it becomes just a matter of course you switch the ignition on and there's the internet and you press a button and there's the radio station or whatever um it's always going to be a problem i'm very very proud very proud of what we all achieved at uh udj it it was it was tough at times a lot of the time there was stuff going on underneath the bonnet that the listeners had no idea about and um it it just worked because I think it worked because we had the right people for the right reasons. The people involved with UDJ, you know, in the running of UDJ, were in it for the right reasons. They wanted to run this project. They wanted to make this project a success. Um, And it, it, it was... Uh, Very, very, very few weeks go by without somebody talking to me about United DJs and how they miss it. And I understand that because it it very quickly became, you know, your go-to radio. And if I'm being totally honest, sometimes twice isn't enough either, but hey, I could sit here all afternoon and play Who records, but I don't think I'd be here tomorrow if I did that somehow. My generation, and I can't explain. Wednesday afternoon, if you'd like to take your partner by the hand, we'll have a listen to
1: Chris Rhea. So I, I actually remember, I think, the day that... Because it was originally meant to close down in December, and I actually remember, yeah. I think I was listening to Stuart Busby's show, and uh, Stuart almost sounded close to tears when he... Uh, he didn't actually say what was happening, but he... No. He did sound close to tears uh, yep. after say, just saying, listen to Tony at three o'clock. And yep. then, of course, Tony said what happened. Uh, but then, of course, UDJ was saved for yeah. just a few more months. And then it's um, in May that you um, you closed down. And I mean, it, it must have been a really hard day that day.
2: Very difficult. And if I'm being honest, there were those within the station who didn't take the view that we should close down i sat in tony's kitchen and he spelt it out to me he spelt out the whole situation and i said we've got to close it tony and he said but i can't do that to these people meaning the people on the radio station the djs and i said but you've spent a quarter of a million pounds you can't keep this up this is just lunacy and my exact words to tony were you are not responsible for us you are responsible for you and for your wife christine you're not responsible for us we're we you know we're grown ups and if udj had continued from that point there is no doubt in my mind it would become it would have become more diluted it would have ended. I think we ended on a high. We ended on a peak. And if we'd have continued any longer, it would have slowly eroded. And, you know, it's it's like that. You want to remember the way it was rather than the way it had become. And um, there was no chance in my mind that we could have sustained where we were for very much longer. And I just think it's nicer for us all, for those involved on our side and for those involved on the listening side. It's much nicer that we all remember it the way it was at the peak. And, um, yeah, it meant, I mean, hugely sad. And you know, you mentioned Stuart close to tears. You know, he, he's not the only one, trust me. I mean, you know, the... the um, I think a lot of Kleenex must have noticed a big rise in their sales at that period because it was just, it had become a way of life and it had become something very, very special for all of us, the listeners included. And one of the things that many listeners say, because we went through um, the lockdown together and they all say, you know, you got us through lockdown, you got us, and, and, and they think I'm just coming out with a platitude, but it works both ways. And, you know, I was on my own, in my home, getting up to do a radio show. And like everybody, I felt the effects of lockdown, I felt the the growing concern, the fear, the when will I ever see my loved ones again, all of that. But the listeners We were all in it together because of that relationship that we had. Very unique relationship that we had with that radio station. And we all helped each other through it. So, you know, it was a two-way thing. Very proud. I mean, I keep saying the same thing. <laughs> Those two words very proud, very proud, Luke, because I can't think of anything that sums up my feelings about UDJ. There was a lot wrong with UDJ. It wasn't perfect, it was not the perfect radio station. But when you consider the minuscule budget that we had, tiny, tiny budget, uh, and what we got out of the radio station, um, <laughs> here it comes. Very proud. Luke. Um, yeah, phenomenal. Behind a painted smile. Although, I've got to be honest, the makeup isn't very good. I've never been very good at makeup. You noticed, if you are on Facebook, that picture of me, by the way, have a look at my nose. You see, boxing did that. Undefeated boxing career did that. I took him the distance. It wasn't a knockout, but I won. Undefeated, but I ended up.
1: With a like that. I know, I know. On that note, Bob, what advice would you give to anyone who's uh, wanting to start a career in radio?
2: <sighs> don't. I, I, it's easy to say don't. Um, I, I would say if I was sitting with somebody and they said, I really want to get into radio, I think I would ask why. What is it you want from radio? Now, you see, with me, I have vivid memories of of being in the fourth form at school in a science lesson which was going over my head and I've still got a piece of paper where I was doodling and I was going through this whole process what what do you want from radio you know f- fourth year at school and I'm asking myself this question and I thought you know do you want do you want a career do you want to be a manager and and I was never interested in managing a station, you know, uh, Phil Riley, who runs Boom Radio, I worked with Phil at BRMB and it was obvious, even in those days, that Phil was interested in the the management side and he's gone off and had a really successful career at doing that. Never interested me at all. All I was interested in was radio because I view radio as an art form and, you know, I did I did a while at art college, um, I, I, I think of myself as being a very creative person. And radio for me is all about creativity. So what do you want from radio? Do you want to be creative? If you want to be creative in radio, I would suggest that presenting is probably not the best avenue for you. It might be that you go into production. It might be that you go into program production, but being a radio presenter now, and I'm generalizing, is pretty much like being a voiceover. Somebody will give you a script that they've written. I mean, you know, this is kind of figurative to a certain extent. Uh, Somebody will tell you how long you've got to to speak those words and when you speak. And that's pretty much what radio is. I'm sure there is an argument that says, yeah, but those are the rules. You can be creative within those parameters. That's a separate argument. Fine. If you want to be creative, radio may not be, sorry, presentation may not be your best avenue. If you want to be a star, now, I never wanted that, you see. I never wanted stardom. I never wanted fame. I never, ever thought of radio in career terms. Uh, But if that's the way you look at it, it's a great way to get into show business. It's a great way to get you a leg up to be on television. It's a great way to meet the right people. Um, So it really... I'm sorry that I can't answer that very succinctly, Luke, but I just think it depends what you want. And, And for me the creativity, the artistry, the taking somebody else's art... It's a bit like making a mosaic. You take somebody else's art, whether that be music or whatever, and then you rearrange it into another piece of art. That's that's the way I always view and viewed what I do on the air. If that's what you want, you ain't going to get many chances in, in, in radio, I'm afraid. And I'm sorry that that's potentially bleak... And maybe not what you expected as my answer, but it's the honest answer.
1: Well, that's okay, Bob. But maybe you could uh, answer this one, though. uh, Who was your radio great? I've thought long and hard about this. And there are three.
2: Everyone influenced me at various times. Everybody. But there are three main influences. And you may or may not have heard of any of them. Um, Roger Scott who was on Capital and then on Radio 1 and then on Radio 2, was a huge influence. He, he more than anybody, showed me how you can be short, succinct, and yet project loads of personality. Um, he was just a master at that. A fellow called Tony Allen, uh, again, no longer with us. I worked with Tony on Radio Caroline. He... A bit like me. He started really young. He started when he was 16. Um, Just an absolute brilliant broadcaster. He just, whenever he spoke, you were locked on to what he was saying. He taught me an awful lot. Um, And a guy, Scots guy called Brian McKenzie, who, again, he worked on a pop radio station, Radio North Sea International, playing pop records. And yet he managed to come across as this really caring individual without being soppy about it. Um, If you ever get an opportunity to listen to recordings of Brian McKenzie on Radio North Sea, you'll get it. So it's really an amalgam of those three. There are others, but those are the three main. Roger Scott, Tony Allen and Brian McKenzie.
1: Well, Bob Lawrence, thank you ever so much for joining me on this edition of Radio Greats Today.
2: Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. You're the first The last, my everything. Barry White. Uh, That's not quite it from me. I'm back tonight at 10 o'clock with the 70s album collection, but I'm aware that uh, maybe a bit specialist that, and maybe not everybody listens, but if you are back then, well, that'll be nice. If this is it, well, as I say, thank you. Uh, uh, Seriously, don't take this lightly. I... I I am over the moon that you've spent so much time with me. Who knows? Maybe at some point we will meet again. Big boys don't cry.
0: Remember that. Remembering the great DJs of radio. It's Radio Greats with the Live Luke.